0: Amen. We are in Romans chapter 4. We continue our study this evening, so please turn to Romans chapter 4. I have not yet mastered the habit of writing in my notes the page number on which this is found in the Pew Bible, but I will do my best to remember that. I trust you'll be able to find it in your own copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 4. As we've noted in our study so far, this is probably... The most important of the chapters since really chapters one through four where Paul is defending, proving the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this is in that argument, uh, the most important one really, because he turns to Abraham to prove the doctrine that he noted in the end of chapter three in verse 28, for we hold we hold that one is justified by faith apart, apart from the works of the law. And so in chapter 4, the focus is on Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and the most significant person in all of their history. The scriptures say, and Paul reminds us, that in Genesis fifteen six, Abraham was found to be righteous before God by faith alone by believing God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was not by Abraham's obedience, by his good works, by all of the trials and testings God gave to him, as what the Jews would have thought, that he deserves righteousness because of his faithfulness. But he simply believed that God justifies the ungodly. And the blessing, as David testifies, both of forgiveness of sins and counting him to be righteous apart from the works of the law, is all by faith alone. And let not a man say that circumcision, Paul goes on to say, was something that was part in any way of the reason why God justified Abraham. For the scriptures say very clearly that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised some 28, 30, or more years before he received that sign and seal of of the covenant of God made with him as a testimony, a reminder of the righteousness that he already had by believing God. And all of this was so that he would become, according to God's sovereign plan, that he would become the father of those who would believe without being circumcised, the Gentiles, as well as the father of those who were circumcised and who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not enough for a Jew by lineage to simply say, I'm a child of Abraham because I'm circumcised. He must be circumcised, that's fine because God had commanded it, but he must walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham a faith which he possessed before he was ever circumcised. We have one final section, of course, in chapter 4. It's lengthier, and I think it's somewhat complex. There are a series of things that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. I could do it all in one, but I think there's too much here uh, tonight, certainly in one sermon, and so we're dividing into three. There are several issues here that I think will come become very clear as Paul concludes his argument and defense of justification by faith alone. Tonight, we'll see what I'm referring to as the ever-widening promise of God in verses 13 through 16, and I hope to explain that as we study it tonight. In our next study, we'll learn about the nature of Abraham's faith in verses 16 through 22. His faith is really the focus of those verses. And finally, we'll see, as Paul ends this argument, we'll see in verses 23 through 25, as he concludes here uh, in these verses, uh, that the faith that belonged to Abraham and the faith that God commended in Abraham is not only for his benefit, but but for ours as well. All that belonged to Abraham, all that he received, by faith in the promises of God is ours as well. And so we'll see that in due time. Would you please stand as we read uh, the entire passage 13 through 25? I probably will do this each of the three weeks we study this section to have the whole thing before us. This is the reading of God's holy word. Receive it as such. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. who raised from the dead are from the dead Jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification thus far the reading of god's word all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field the grass it always withers the flowers they always fade but the word of our god stands forever let us pray our father we pray your blessing now upon All that we do this night, the preaching and receiving and hearing of the word, we pray that your blessing would rest upon us in this means of grace that you have appointed for our growth and that our faith would indeed be strengthened as we consider your promise to us, the substance and fullness of which is seen and found in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things I've been thinking about since we began our study in the book of Romans is this question. Why was it so important for Paul to write his letter in the way that he did and so clearly set down in writing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why, why was that so important to him? Well, it may seem obvious, of course, and perhaps it is. You remember the beginning of this letter, he expressed his eagerness to preach to the Roman believers the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to go there. He wanted their faith, which was proclaimed throughout the whole world, he wanted that faith to be strengthened. And Paul knew, as we will see, and as we saw, I should say, in our study of the book of Acts, And Wednesday evenings that getting to Rome meant that the gospel would be extended to the entire world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and so Acts ends with Paul in Rome among the Roman believers there to whom he is writing and if all of that's true that when you reach Rome you reach the world you would surely want to make certain that what reaches Rome and then reaches the world is in fact the gospel in its purity, in its faithfulness, that that gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, remember there were many impostors even in Paul's day, but that that gospel would reach that place and from that place would reach the world. And so Paul, I believe, is writing Romans the way that he does, so carefully laying out the doctrines of our salvation, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it was so important that that gospel be understood in Rome. A gospel that says, from our sin, God has redeemed us in Jesus Christ, and that in that gospel, he has given to us and revealed to us a righteousness, which is by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ that of which the Old Testament spoke of as well. And that's important that Paul reminded us of that in the very beginning, because this gospel is in the Old Testament. God has previously spoken of it, not in all of its fullness, but it is there pointing all, even in the Old Testament, to the Messiah to come. Rome had to get the gospel right. They had to get the gospel right. Of course, there is a great and sad irony today, isn't there? As we celebrate the Reformation this Sunday, the closest to October 31st, Rome is the center of the largest Christian quote-unquote group, Roman Catholicism, with over 1 billion followers. You may remember that shortly after the Reformation began in 1517, there was in 1545 through 1563, uh, those years, 18 years, the most important event in the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation. It took place some 30 years after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in 1517. And just as a side note, when you go downstairs, there's a little picture of a door. And our kids on the back wall nailed 95 theses to that. They're not the same, of course, but, It looked like a great game for them to play as they remember this important day in history. But the Council of Trent, if you know, was opposed to the doctrines that came out of the Reformation. And in that council, they pronounced a series of anathemas. An anathema is a pronouncement by a religious sort of authority, like the Roman Catholic Church in that day, that essentially condemned and basically said, may you go to hell if you believe these things. And among those, of course, and central to those anathemas was the anathemas that they pronounced against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Canon 9, for instance, says this, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is, no, that it is in, not in any way necessary that he pr- be prepared or disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. And then Canon 11 Canon 11, if anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth into their hearts by the Holy Ghost and remains in them, or also that the grace by which they are justified is only the goodwill of God. Let him be anathema, let him be accursed. R.C. Sproul summarized these two particular canons and what they teach and how they are different from what the Bible says in the book of Romans, for instance, and Galatians, of course, says this. Trent said that God does not justify anyone until real righteousness is within that person. In other words, God does not declare a person righteous unless he or she is in fact righteous. So according to Roman Catholic doctrine, justification depends on a person's sanctification. By contrast, the reformers said justification is based On the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and the only ground upon which a person can be saved is Jesus's righteousness, which is reckoned or counted to him by faith when he believes. There were radically different views of salvation. They could not be reconciled. One of them was the gospel. The other was not. Thus, what was at stake in the Reformation was the gospel of Jesus Christ through the council though the council of trent made many fine affirmations of traditional truths of the christian faith it declared and make no mistake about it it did declare that justification by faith alone was to be anathema ignoring many plain teachings of scripture such as romans 3:28 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law now these teachings of the Council of Trent have never been recanted by the Church, and it remains to this day the view of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the true gospel we know did go out from Rome. It did go around the world. But now Rome, surprisingly, is a mission field where laborers are being sent, trained to take the gospel of Jesus Christ one of our own men in our own presbytery. He didn't go to Rome, he went to Italy, the, the land of his birth. Santo Garofalo and his wife uh, left a while ago, meaning over a year ago, to go to Italy as missionaries with MTW to take this gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, to a nation which has largely become secular, not even Roman Catholic anymore, in its practice and the practice of its people. And so we see the irony, we see uh, the sadness of what has come, but we rejoice that as Paul wrote this, he wanted the Rome of his day to be the center of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's really what he's doing in these verses. He is ending his argument, bringing it to a conclusion, still looking at Abraham, but now focused really upon the idea of the promise that God gave to Abraham. And that's what we'll look at tonight, just very briefly. Uh, The next time together, we'll look more closely at Abraham's faith, the nature of his faith, the working out of that faith. And then again, the promise to him and how he received it was not only for him, but for all, in fact, who believe. So first, let's look together at the promise to Abraham. You see this in verse 13. Paul writes, and he introduces something here really for the first time since his opening verses. He's talked about the promise back in chapter 1. If you go back, you can see that in the very beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which was promised or which he promised beforehand through the holy prophets and in the holy scriptures. So he's mentioned this idea of God making promises, but this is the first time in Romans that he brings the idea of a promise before his readers. And he says to them, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What, what is this promise? Well, the sermon title, I think, will give you a hint that what we see in the scriptures, beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, the first encounter with Abraham. I'll read the verses. You can just listen. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those or dishonor you or those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abram departed, left for the land of Canaan. When he got to the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to him again and said to your offspring, I will give you this land. It's very brief, fairly direct. You can sort of break it down and look at the promises he gave him. But then in Genesis 15, we see the Lord speaking even more clearly, if you will, broadening, if you will, the promise that he gave in Genesis 12. Look toward the heavens, he says in Genesis 15, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then renewing the promise to your offspring, I will give you, this land. And he broadens it again. He starts to give more information from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, etc. And then when you get to Genesis 17, where circumcision is commanded by God, behold, the Lord says, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And so I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." Now if you track those three instances, you can see this sort of widening of the promise of God growing and expanding. Now that continues, and we won't have time to go through it all, but that continues all the way through the Bible, through the books of Moses, and then through the prophets and the writings. You have reference to the promise given to Abraham, but you have an expanding of it, a growing of it, until it finds, as we know in the New Testament, its fullness pictured in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says to Abraham, with regard to this promise made to him, for when God, chapter six, made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, that is God by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God was faithful to give him what he had promised. But Abraham could not begin to imagine the fullness and the ever-widening promise of God that he was speaking of to him in those days. It was limited to the blessing of Abram uh, upon his life and, and regarding people who blessed him or cursed him. It was limited to a particular plot of land. It was limited in all of those ways, but we know through the scriptures that that broadens more and more to take into account so much more than Abraham could have imagined. Now, here is where things get interesting. One of our elders said this is a, a difficult passage. The passage read in Galatians is a difficult passage. And, and, and we bring the reading that we've just heard from Galatians to bear on this because we have the same language for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, and his offspring. Now, Paul is using this, I think, in two different ways. The offspring of Abraham truly are those who have the faith of Abraham to believe the promises that God has has made, right? That was clear, And, and, and that's how it's commonly understood. But when you bring in Galatians, as we will remind ourselves in a moment, when he says, and his offspring, Paul has really someone else in mind To give a human example, he writes, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, Paul does this rather uh, simply here, without explanation, introduces the same idea that the focus here is really not ultimately on those who have the same faith, but ultimately pointing us to Christ who becomes the mediator and the substance of the promise and covenant which God has made. It's what Abraham saw by faith. He was looking beyond even The promises that God had given to him with regard to the land, and we'll see that in a moment. But the idea here, the emphasis here, is that what Abraham was believing, what Abraham was putting his faith in, is a promise that ultimately would be fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's really where his faith was resting. When Abraham said, or Jesus said of Abraham, Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it, it's a reference to his faith, believing the promise of God that was both for him and his offspring. Now we get a hint of this ever widening promise of God when he says what he does at the next part of verse 13 that he would be heir of the world, he says. Wait a second, we say, didn't God, and he's very specific, giving sort of boundaries in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Wasn't the promise really related to a particular plot of ground that this was, as friends that I've argued this with, point with before over many years, wasn't this the unconditional promise of God that this plot of land belongs to the descendants of Abraham forever? Wasn't that exactly the substance of what Abraham was believing? No, look how Paul writes. He he doesn't say this piece of land. He says that he would become heir of the world. This was striking. It was unexpected because remember again, the promise was to specific land. But as we've said, the Bible unfolds in its progression of God's revelation. And we see this widening of his promises. These early promises, we know through the rest of the teaching of Scripture, were the type and shadow of greater things to come, as is true with all the promise of God in the Old Testament. They're all types and shadows. Think of the ceremonial system and the, the offering of sacrifices. They were all types and shadows. Hebrews makes that clear abundantly in many different ways. And what Paul is pointing us to is ultimately Christ because it is in Christ, the offspring of Abraham, singular, that we inherit the entire world. The whole earth is the Lord's and the whole earth, the whole world, all of creation is the inheritance of the people of God who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone by faith. That's why I wanted to begin with Matthew 28. As Jesus is raised from the dead, as he gathers his disciples before his ascension, he tells them, All authority is mine, and I'm calling you, I'm sending you out into all the earth to take the gospel, because all the earth is the, the focus of my saving work. The whole world, he says, and Abraham and his offspring. And all of those who with Abraham and joined to Christ are heirs of the entire world and so go into all the world. Now, how do we know all of this is true? How do we know that God's promises expand from a plot of ground in the Middle East that people fight about till this day to something far, far greater, the whole earth, the new heavens and the new earth? Well, Hebrews 11 gives us some very helpful instruction regarding this. In Hebrews 11, speaking of Abraham and the other saints who lived by faith and believed the promise of God, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Well, wait, earlier in Hebrews, it says in chapter 6 that God fulfilled the promise. Well, he did. But this is a reference to the ever-expanding and widening promise of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a new heaven, a new earth, all things renewed and claimed by King Jesus. This is the promise really given to Abraham, the promise that he believed by faith and received the promise by faith. The second point, and we'll come back to some of these thoughts as we continue through the rest of this section. But the second question that we need to ask is what Paul asks How did the promise then come? How did he receive it? Now, Paul's argument is clear, it's throughout the previous section of chapter four as well. The contrast is always between by the works of the law or by faith. And Paul's argument is laid out here. It did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be these heirs of the world, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see his argument, it's fairly straightforward, especially in chapter four, he's talked about this contrast between law and um, the works of the law and faith. But here he's being very specific with respect to the promise that is made. If we say that it is by the works of the law and those who adhere to those works, by the way, he says this in Galatians, that law wasn't given until 430 years after Abraham, So it wasn't even given, codified, written down. That's the point he makes in Galatians. But but if it were to come by works of the law, it makes the promise void. Faith is null. It's by works, which contradict everything that Abraham has said up until this point. It, It can't be by the law because the law brings only wrath. The idea that, There is where there is no law, there is no transgression. It it is the idea that we said this morning in our confession from the Heidelberg Catechism. From where do you know your sins and your misery? Where do we know that we are sinners and in a state of misery? You know the answer. We said it together this morning from the law of God. That's where we know. We know by the law. And so we all know this who are parents as we raise our children, when we teach them right and wrong, they begin to understand right and wrong, that there is a law to be obeyed when we lay one down. The, the law, no, you can't do that. No, don't touch that. And we know what happens, right? When we tell our kids, no, you can't touch that. What do they do? They touch it. Because by the law comes wrath. It brings wrath. It brings punishment. The law is given to reveal our sin, and the punishment of the law is wrath or judgment. And so by God's grace, they learn right and wrong as that law is laid down, and they learn to obey by the grace of God. But Paul says, listen, if it's by works, it makes faith void, and the promise is void as well. And so it can't be. It can't be. This is the point I referenced earlier Paul makes in Galatians 3 when he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. That's a reference to whom? To Christ. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the promise is given to Abraham, How does he receive it? It's it's not by the works of the law. It can't be. It makes the promise void. It makes faith null. It can't be. It has to be by faith. That's the way promises are received and embraced, which leads to the conclusion that Paul makes here in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring." There's Reformation hints here, aren't they? Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. That's what Paul is saying. Because it's by faith, because the promise is received by faith and faith alone, then it guarantees that the promise may rest only on God's grace. It is all of grace. We noted this last week, and I won't go through it again, but in Genesis 15, where God renewed the covenant, he made in chapter 12 and again in chapter 15 and 17, but in 15, in the covenant and the ratification of that covenant, literally the cutting of the covenant, that's what covenant means, a bond cut in blood, sovereignly administered. That's one of the best definitions of covenant. Uh, A bond cut in blood, sovereignly administered. It was sovereignly administered by God. Abraham was asleep. God passed through the pieces on the day that God made a covenant with Abram and gave him those promises. And so all of it rests on grace. It's all of God. It's all the work of his grace. Now, next week, we're going to come back or two weeks, actually, we're going to come back and we're going to look at. The nature of Abraham's faith. What did his faith look like? How was he able to do what he did and embrace these promises by faith? We have a lot to say about that. But here's the great point and the thing we need to grasp that Paul makes regarding the promise of God. Justification by faith must be by faith alone. Because the promises God has made, those promises can only be received by faith. And never through the works of the law. We can't earn them. We can't do anything to gain them. They are only by his grace and only by faith alone. That's his argument here. And Abraham, again, is the supreme example. That's to whom the promise was made and his offspring. And, and so, so we see the fullness, this ever-widening promise of God being fully realized in the substance of the promise, who is Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant, who is Jesus Christ. That's what Abraham was believing, and ultimately, every part of that promise pointed to Christ. That's where he was looking, by faith and by faith alone. There's only one thing to say as we close, and it's just really one point of application, and it's obvious, but it needs to be said as we close. Faith... And only faith lays hold of promises. Faith lays hold of promises. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. Our faith lays hold of promises that God has made to us in Jesus Christ. That is what we are constantly coming back to. As we wrestle in our faith, as we struggle through the providences of this life we are always by faith laying hold of promises that God has given to us. Those promises are not things that we can see or touch or feel. They're not things that we can hold in our hands, but many of us at times long to have something tangible about what God has given to us in Christ. But if you think about everything that is ours in Christ... It is all of it, faith, laying hold of the word of God, the promises which he has given to us in Jesus Christ. That's how our life, and we'll see this next time, is like Abraham's life. You think of his life, and Paul's going to go through some of the specific examples. He looked at his own body, over 100 years old. He looked at his wife's womb, barren, And yet he believed because God made a promise and faith embraces, lays hold of promises. That's what we do. And so when people struggle, both of us as pastors and as elders, as we begin to, to or as we continue to pray for you, so often our prayers are that you would first remember the promises that God has given to you and that we would as well and that by faith you would lay hold of them And be at rest and be at peace, knowing that the one who promised is faithful to do it all. And knowing that all of those promises are what? Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.4, 2 Peter's full of that expression of the promises of God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence there are things right those are heavenly things not earthly things not things we can see by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire but according chapter 3 to his promise we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're longing for. Not, not a plot of ground, not a land in a distant country, but the whole earth is ours. New heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwells. 1 John 2, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you have heard from the beginning and it abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. We have it now. It's not tangible. We can't touch it, feel it, hold it. But it is as surely ours as the things in this room we take hold of with our hands and feel and touch. It is ours and we possess it as Abraham did by faith, by simply believing God and his promise. Our final hymn is changed. As I mentioned, we're going to sing Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I love that last Part of it, it's a wonderful statement of Luther as he wrote these words, as the psalmist wrote them first, and Luther adapted them to this great hymn from Psalm 46. That word, of course, is Christ, All above is all, above all earthly powers, and no thanks to them abideth the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because our faith is not rooted here in this world. It is seeking heavenly, spiritual things where Christ is. The body, even the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His promises are sure and true, and his kingdom, of which we are a part now, and of which we will see the fullness of on that great day, is forever. And so I've referenced it. Let me read it as we close these words as we prepare to sing that great hymn. As surely as God is faithful, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. And it is God who establishes us us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, in our hearts as a guarantee. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we know that this world is filled with devils. We'll sing it in a moment, but we know that there is one who has triumphed over all our enemies. And the one to whom we look, the fullness, the substance, the promise itself, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so strengthen our faith, even as we sing this great hymn together. Strengthen our faith as we enter into this world with all such devils this world being filled with in trials and tribulations that we might rest by faith in the promises which you have given to us and with great hope live in the midst of this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.